You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Aisha Thomas Petit. Aisha is a diversity, equity, and inclusion executive with extensive experience aligning human capital and business strategy in large global and transforming organizations. With her mother and father committed to co-parenting from two different coasts, Aisha spent her childhood shuttling between Philadelphia and Pasadena, California. But by college, she decided to make Syracuse University her home. Aisha knew she wanted a career in business and found herself in the banking industry at the start of her career. But she took an interest in recruiting initiatives on the side and soon discovered that she really enjoyed it. This interest eventually turned into a career pivot, and Aisha found herself at Lehman Brothers working in an HR role for the IT department. And it was during her maternity leave that Lehman collapsed. In the aftermath of the event that kicked off the financial crisis, Aisha ended up in a much more junior role at Barclays. But she hung in there, and her journey would lead her to what she saw as her dream job. However, the dream job left her wondering what was next. But Aisha persevered, and her next did find her. Today, she not only has a seat at the table at her company, she leads the charge with respect to its DEI strategy. And on top of that, she's setting an example of what a healthy home life can look like. So without further ado, here's her story. Aisha, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for asking and thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. We start every show asking how people are, particularly now because there's just so much happening in the world and we know that what it takes to just have an hour or an hour and a half of calm to talk to us is no easy feat for a lot of people um, given their profession and then just all the difficulty that we've had and obstacles that we have had to face over the last year and a half. So we are happy to have you here. Um, I think this is going to be a great conversation. Now, people who listen to us often will say, Dee's been saying that a lot lately, but it's true. We've just had like a great run of guests. Um, and we were talking about before I pressed record here, how our stories are, are, are pretty similar. There's some, some commonality there, which always makes for an even better conversation. So I'm really excited to get into this one. I am so excited as well. In fact, when you ask me how I'm doing, I am wonderful. I'm also a little tired Uh, (laughs) this morning. I had an incredible evening last night with a group of, there must've been about 10 of us, 10 black women, okay, (laughs) got together and just vibed. Like it was such a wonderful, and it it wasn't even my friends. It was uh, a friend of mine who brought all her girlfriends together and invited me. And I was, I was, Pretty honored that uh, I got the invite. Wasn't quite sure what I was walking into, but it was such a sisterhood. And we, you know, as the young people say, we turned up. I had, you know, a few glasses of wine. It was a lot of 90s music. It was a very raspy voice uh, this morning. And I'm drinking this tea to sort of keep my life together. But it was, it was wonderful, needed. And after a day of doing what I call my superwoman or supermom, uh, I'm, I'm glad I did it for sure. Isn't, isn't it great when that happens? Like when you, for lack of a better term, infiltrate another circle and you know like <laughs> one person, but somehow it all just clicks. Yep. And then I always have that feeling the next morning where I'm like, 
that was such a great night. I feel like I got hit by a bus, but it was such a great night. And it's, you know, and it's so needed, like you said. And oftentimes, one of the things that we've been talking about on the show is allowing space for new people in your life. Right. Because you think at this age and stage, you've got your your crew, your village, the folks that you really can connect with. But there is this whole other community of black women out there who can add value that you can pour into yes. and they can pour into you. And it often happens so instantaneously. And then also you can just have fun and like be lit. Right. And Absolutely. have a good time. Absolutely. Um, so that is a good night. That is a good night when you walk away feeling like empowered. But also I had a really mm-hmm. great time. Mm-hmm. And I might be a little buzzed too. Like that's a good one. <laughs> it was phenomenal. So I'm excited. I woke up nice and early for you, Delisha. I was like, I have a podcast to do in the morning. <laughs> Let me get my hair together, my face together, drink some water, drink some tea, and I'm here. So and you know, I'm ready. you know what's funny? We we always plan for the Sunday cancellation because <gasps> people they just you never know, and then they yeah. be like, I-, I thought I could and I can't. Um, so I just, I was like, we'll see what happens. But then when you emailed me last night, I was like, oh no, she's in. Oh, I'm in. I'm in. And I, and I was in at that point. I'm like, wait, am I going to be on the video? Because I need to make sure everything is together if that's the case. So. Well, you look gorgeous. Thank you. Thank now, you, my dear, you as well. Goodness, thank you. I'm so glad to be in your presence. So anyway, Listen, I know you I, have questions. I told you. Me. Yes, I told you. This is never about me. It's all about the guests. And we're about to get into it. Okay, let's do it. Okay, let's go. Who is Aisha Thomas Petit? This woman, me. uh, I'm a person that gets up on the 10 count every time. Lots of mountaintop moments, um, all of which I cherish very, very deeply. But one of the things that has been consistent or what I would call the through line is that I get up. I, I I get up. And sometimes that 10 count is 10 seconds. Sometimes it's 10 minutes. Sometimes it's 10 days, 10 months even. But there is one thing that anyone who knows me is clear about. I get up and I keep it moving. Uh, and it, it takes a lot of work to do that. Um, but I, I am also a person that considers my whole self, um, mental, spiritual, physical, um, well-being is very important to me. I'm a joy snatcher. I wake up and I'm like, you know what? Life is too short for us not to have joy in our hearts and in our spirits. And that's what has gotten me through many, many hard and seemingly impossible things. So that's who I am. And I find that folks who have a history of getting up on the 10 count, right? That is not something that just starts in adulthood or late. It, it, and I hate to say it, but it's like the the hand that you were dealt and you're pruned for that and you are primed for it from a very early age normally, right? It's what you've witnessed or been socialized for. It's a, it's, it's a lot that I think contributes to having that personality. So talk to me a little bit about your origin story and how you grew up. Wow. Okay. So I was um, a bi-coastal kid. Uh, I was born of parents who were college sweethearts, uh, Morgan State University. My parents both went to, uh, and they made it probably only a couple years out of college. So got married, had me. Uh, By the time I was two years old, they were already starting the divorce process. 
my father uh, eventually within the first couple years after the split decided to move to California. And I was raised in Philadelphia originally. When he moved to Cali, uh, one of his uh, goals was to ensure that I always knew that no matter the distance, he was going to be there for me and that we would maintain the deep connection with one another that we had from the start. And so from the time I was five years old, Delisha, I was on a plane alone between Philadelphia and Pasadena, California. And while that sounds or may sound exciting, um, at five years old, six years old, it's scary. Um, And so I realized very early on that I had to trust and rely on what was inside of me and my assessment of what was around me um, to ensure that I was safe, um, that I could fend for myself, that I knew how to be independent because a five to six hour time, uh, you know, time frame on a plane alone with just at that time, we called them stewardesses, uh, now flight attendants. All you had, all I had was the wings that identified that I was by myself and needed to be quote looked after, but really I was looking after myself. Mm. Um, and so from that experience all the way through to today and many of the Valley moments that happened in between that time, I, I go in or inward, I go to my inner self and, you know, I, I like to now in retrospect as a as a grown, grown adult, um, there were certainly tools that I had to use in order to show up in the world in the way that I did from that time to present. Um, and it, it was it, it's been a colorful uh, roller coaster kind of ride, uh, but I have absolutely no regrets and I do it all again in the same way. So. So, you know, when when someone mentions that, particularly a Black person, like my parents were college sweethearts, we all, many of us have this vision in, in our minds of what that means, right? Yeah. Upwardly mobile, nuclear family, you know, at Sag Harbor on the venue. Like when, you know, certain generations, if you've had parents who, who went to school, um, there's a thought about what that means. And you don't, you don't often hear the story of, of Black people being college sweethearts and breaking up that early and then being on two separate coasts now and now trying to raise a child as upwardly mobile folks who are no longer together. So from like a household and cultural perspective, were there differences in how you were socialized in your mom's house and your dad's house? Yes, uh, very much so. So my parents both uh, in turn got into new relationships. Uh, my mother remarried, my father remarried. So I have a a very dynamic, uh, interesting family structure. Um, Unfortunately, uh, in my mother's home, there was a lot of domestic violence. Um, Mm. And so that certainly shaped, you know, my experience as a young woman, actually. Uh, And I, I think one of the earliest things I remember about it is the need to set boundaries um, because I watched my mother allow people to cross boundaries that 
shouldn't have been crossed, to be fair. Uh, and my mother is a resilient, amazing woman uh, that has such strength and courage. Um, but in her valley moments, um, I sort of learned how not to go there. Uh, and, and, you know, outside of the, the, the DV, as I'll call it, um, there were amazing things about growing up in Philadelphia um, and in in my mother's household. Um, my mother's a very cultured person. Um, she's, you know, all, all the wells that uh, that I know from her, I sort of have adopted. Well read, well spoken, you know, well traveled. All of those wells that we use, um, she certainly checks the box there. Um, and that that part of growing up in in uh, Philly definitely shaped me uh, and and probably the level of curiosity I have about people, places, and things. I got that from my mom, you know, but partially from my dad also. My parents are actually very similar in that way. Um, but Philadelphia is very, you know, pro-Black, um, you know, what, what we now know uh, as Black excellence, I think Philadelphia and, and being with my mother sort of gave me that. Um, on the flip side, uh, my father's household, so my father remarried uh, a woman who I actually call mom also, which is an, an interesting uh, dynamic. He has been with my mom uh, since I was about six uh, mm. years old. So I'm 45, uh, in case anybody is curious. That's a long time to be with someone who uh, is a maternal figure for me. Uh, she had a first marriage, so she brought three boys into the relationship and my father brought me. Uh, and so that family dynamic was incredible. My stepmom actually is Hawaiian, so very different cultural construct. Uh, and so it, you look at my family and you can't sort of identify um, us <laughs> as being connected to one another, but we we certainly are. California is a very much free-spirited kind of place. It's uh, more of a mix of people and cultures than it is any one dominant. Uh, and I kind of enjoyed that coming from what was a very Black world, mm -hmm. uh, Philadelphia to a very mixed world, um, was fascinating for me. Um, it was the first time in my life uh, from seventh grade through 12th grade first time in my life that I had all different types of friends. Um, I was exposed to, you know, people who came from different socioeconomic status, statuses. Uh, and I loved it. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, I've been missing this um, sort of perspective or this view of the world. And so I, I, I just enjoyed being a bi-coastal kid. I embraced it. I was always different. I was either in California as the girl who had this weird East Coast accent to then going back to the East Coast. And even my mother ended up uh, moving to South Carolina. So then it was like, where is this girl from? You know, and I, I, I've always been um, asked where are you from? And mm -hmm. that's a pretty loaded question because sometimes it's the look, yes. uh, sometimes it's the accent, which is now I think gone, but maybe not. Uh, and then sometimes it's just 
you know, you, you, you speak proper English and, you know, it's, it's such a loaded question, but I don't take offense by it. I embrace it. And I, any, any chance I have to share, um, part or my, either in part or my full story, um, I count it a blessing because I know that there are aspects of it that um, inspire people, push people to do different things and make for pretty damn good conversation also. Absolutely. And, you know, I pride myself on being able to pick a Philly accent out of a lineup in record time. You have definitely lost it. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. It is gone. Yeah. Yeah. But I always say like Philly is my favorite city. Um, and people are always shocked by that, but you know, I was there for college. So during formative years. And one of the things that I always say is that Philly, it was the first time and I'm coming just from Jersey, but it was the first time where I saw blackness embraced. And this is pre natural hair movement, pre all of that. But I saw that embraced in Philly in a way I had never seen in New Jersey. And also I always say Philly was hipster way before that was the cool thing to be. Like way before Philly had its own hipster culture for sure. Yes, I agree. I agree. (laughs) So what frequency were you on with this bi-coastal travel with both parents? So five to 12, it was in Philly and for school and, you know, school year, if you will. Uh, And then summers and Christmas in California. And then from 12 to 18, it was the inverse. Mm. Uh, Although my mother moved to South Carolina, so it wasn't necessarily going back to Philly, but it was coming to the East Coast and visiting in the summer and during Christmas uh, in a little town that has Oh my gosh, at that time, probably 14,000 people, a tiny, tiny, tiny little country town uh, where my mother was actually born and raised before uh, moving to Queens, New York. So she's a New Yorker, but she is originally from this tiny town uh, where, I, where I would visit. Got it. So thinking about your formative years, getting into you know high school and now having this experience of going to school there, did you want to stay on the West Coast for college? What were your aspirations? Yeah, so at the time, and and I've always been someone who didn't always go with with the crowd. Um, I sort of marched to the beat of my own drum, if you will. And many of my friends at the time were going to California schools um, or they were going to HBCUs. And I applied to probably 13 different schools and got into most of them. And it, it, it was all over the country. So California, uh, East Coast, sort of North, Northeast, um, and then a few HBCUs. Um, and I settled on Syracuse. Um, I think there were only two other kids at the time from Pasadena that had made that choice. Uh, and you know, I, I kind of enjoyed coming back to the East Coast to not just be on the same coast with my mother and my younger brother, um, who is a lot younger than me, about seven years younger. Um, so even when I was in college, he was still sort of a kid. Uh, my dad's family is from upstate New York. So I had a couple of uncles and my grandparents that were proximate to Syracuse, um, only within a few hours away. And so, you know, there were a couple things that went into that decision. 
I love sports, um, not to play, but as a spectator. Um, and I knew that I wanted to go into business. And so it was really important for me to identify uh, a really good uh, business school to get my undergraduate degree from. And Syracuse had that. So that's where I ended up in the coldest place, I think, in the universe uh, coming from Pasadena, California. People were like, you're going to do what? Why would you why would you go there? And I'm like, it's going to be it's going to be good. I just know it's going to be good. They sent me a VHS tape. I didn't even go visit the campus. <laughs> not not the VHS. Yes. I already told you I'm old now. Look, it was the VHS. OK. And I popped that that bad boy in. We, My parents and I watched it. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, this campus looks good, you know, and it had the other check marks, the sports, the business school. Um, and it had just enough black and brown kids for me to be like, OK, like I can do this. <laughs> I think on a base of 20,000 students back then, there might have been a thousand of us like wow. black and Latino kids. But it, it's a very, very tight knit family sort of oriented student body. Um, and we, we made it work. And I had the best time of my life in college. No regrets. I just picture snow in like frigid temperatures. But Negative 40 wind chill. You don't like that? What? Not my thing. Not your thing. Oh, okay. It wasn't my, what? I didn't know if I would like it, but I loved it. I loved it. So how does one manage visits home now? So you're at school, right? And now you've got the situation where you've got your parents in different places. Yes. How do you manage the holidays? We, goodness, I, well, you really only had, I really only had two summers, uh, actually maybe even one summer to deal with because the other summers, internships, right? Mm-hmm. I, I needed to be in New York, which is what I did. Um, and so it was sort of a Thanksgiving, Christmas uh, situation. And I would choose which you know, which household I would go to for what. Um, I spent a lot more time in South Carolina because it was cheaper, quite frankly, to get to. Um, I did a lot of drives down there rather than, um, you know, hop on a plane. My parents, even though it's funny, you said, oh, you think, you know, college educated parents, well to do, Martha's Vineyard, this and that. Mm -hmm. My parents were pretty much middle class. I, I, call them. They made decent livings, um, but not enough to just put me on a plane whenever, Mm -hmm. you know, I needed to to do so. Um, And so we just made it work. You know, it was a lot of planning, um, a lot of, you know, saving money. I always had a job. I think the only only time I didn't have a job was uh, in my freshman year. Uh, just to focus on getting getting assimilated uh, to my new environment. But every year thereafter, I always work. And it, it sort of goes back to, you know, the independence that I, I need to show up in the world with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't like to depend on anybody. I'm like, if I can't make it come together or figure out some resources that will help me make it come together, I am wildly uncomfortable. So um, I made it work. I, I went between the places. My parents were very helpful with supplementing. Um, but really, at the end of the day, um, I would spend time in New Jersey uh, in those three summers uh, where I did internships in New York in banking, because that's where I knew I was going to end up. 
So that choice was relatively easy. Yeah. And banking long way away from what you do right now, which we're, we're going to, we're going to get to, yeah. um, but that whole like independence. And I know a lot of that is driven by the fact that you were essentially on your own, you know, this is back in the day too. Like now there's so much more policy and protocol around children flying alone. Um, very different, you know, back then. But do you think some of that was driven by the fact that you had these really great supportive parents, you had siblings, you know, and these two separate households, but in the sense you were on an island, that you were the the other, the solo child that connected these two worlds. So do you think you felt a little bit of that solitude or otherness, even though you had these great, you know, great parents and great families on both sides? You know, I, I don't know that I ever really felt alone because okay. the other really important thing that we have not talked about yet is the people that I surrounded myself with. I have always had the best friends, mm-hmm. no matter what stage of life, whether it was, you know, zero to 18, where I can, you know, I can call the names of the women who really supported me, loved me, held my hand, wrote me. I wrote them like this is back in the day where there was no, you know, social media, there was no internet, there was no email. I have letters upon letters. Like I could fill a trunk with the letters that were uh, going back and forth between me and my, my best friend from Philadelphia, Lynette. Um, and, and that was really helpful, um, in, in not feeling like I was alone. I always had someone that I could trust that I knew loved me and that I loved that weren't my parents or my Mm -hmm. siblings, but these sisters, these, you know, and I don't have sisters. I got all brothers on every side, which is amazing. Um, but God always gave me these sisters, these sister friends at every single stage of my journey. Uh, and today, uh, the the core, and we we actually call ourselves the core four, which is hysterical, but my three best friends in the world, all of us have been friends. Well, I'm the glue. So I have been friends with each of them uh, between 21 and 30. Uh, maybe 27 years. Like Mm. I'm struggling to do the math, but it's well over 20 years. Um, And so they've been with me and I've been with them through some pretty incredible times. Loneliness has never been a thing for me. Never. Mm. Which is like an interesting dynamic, right? Because you you have a temperament where you're going to figure it out for yourself. Right. And but then you also have this great village as well. You don't often see that dichotomy. It's either one or the other. Like I'm flying solo. I got to figure this out. I'm going to pull myself up. I'm coming back off the 10 count. I don't need anybody. It's, it's cool. Or people having a bit of a codependence. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you have a great a great balance. And there's certain things in which or certain scenarios in which you are going to go inward and draw from your own strength. But you do have the support of a great set of friends as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know that I've ever thought about it in that way until you literally just said it. Um, I don't think anybody can walk in this world alone and and make it like Mm -hmm. this is this is the world is hard. Okay, (laughs) I heard this sister say I I participated in um, 
uh, a session. It was a bit of a, it wasn't a podcast, but um, it was definitely video recorded. These sisters out of the UK um, who were doing uh, a session around Black History Month in the UK, the Black History Month is uh, October, which is fascinating. So one of the sisters said that her mother told her, uh, and now I'm stealing it, so I'm, I'm using it. I, I don't even remember her name, so I'm sorry. Whoever, whatever your name is, like, thank you for this amazing insight. Her mother told her growing up, the world has teeth and it bites. Mm. And when she said it, I thought to myself, gosh, like if we all knew that, like from little, we would show up in the world more prepared Absolutely. <laughs> than sometimes we are. And so for me, just knowing that and experiencing some of the bite uh, that the world has given me, I don't know anybody who can make it through that alone. So I guess that that's why you find me to be someone who kind of goes in between the sort of fierce independence and, you know, no, but also carrying the knowledge that there is a whole crew, a whole village, a whole tribe that I know will support me if I can't hold myself up or pick myself up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So shifting back to the career journey a bit. You knew you wanted to be in business, you're doing these internships, but what did the ideal career look like for you at that time going through the college experience? So my undergraduate degree is in marketing. Actually, I have an MBA in marketing as well. So I I thought my earliest vision for myself was that I was going to be this fancy marketing executive. Now, you and I both know we're women of a certain age Mm -hmm. that back then, and I graduated from college in 1998. In 1998, we could probably call the name name of a Black marketing executive, maybe one, maybe two. Right. So, you know, it was, it was a stretch for me to even think about that, but I knew I could make it in business. I knew I was smart enough to go into a corporation and do something, be it marketing or, or not. Um, so I chose to go into uh, a management training program in a very prominent bank uh, that I still love to this day. I look back very fondly in, on, on my time there and how smart the choice was to go into that space. Um, I had an uncle, as we call in the Black community, my uncle, he's really my godfather, my father's best friend, who was a very prominent uh, Black executive at this particular bank. Um, and he between him and my dad, they groomed me for what I was supposed to be. They were like, look, like you go into a management training program, it's going to be sort of, um, you know, experiencing different aspects of the business and from a rotational standpoint. And then when you're done with the program, you get placed into a job uh, in one of the, the departments or business segments. And that's quite frankly, what I did. Um, I loved every second of it. Um, and after sort of the training program, I thought to myself, I'm probably not going to be a marketing executive. <laughs> so let me, let me figure out what else in banking I can actually do. Um, so I, you know, I was placed into this business. It was the old fiduciary trust business. Nobody even knows what the hell that means. Um, but I, I knew 
within a couple months that it was going to be short lived. I was bored. I was surrounded by, you know, people who had been in the business for 30 years. You can imagine it was not a very diverse um, organization uh, at that time. And I started doing what I'll call extracurricular activities on the side, but internally, like, oh, you want to go to um, to campus, go, go down to NYU or go to Howard and do the presentation about the bank, you know, and get young people to um, be interested and want, want to get a job out of college with the bank. And I'm like, yeah, of course, like free trip, you know, <laughs> I was like, I'm in like, this is the smartest thing I can do right now. Right. But what it did is placed me with HR people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is cool. Um, these people are actually pretty sophisticated, right? So fast forward to probably about uh, maybe 2000, the year t- 2001, maybe. And I still in my mind thought I would do something marketing related. I just wasn't sure about being a marketing executive. And they, they created a job uh, to do internet-based marketing. Mm. What a concept that the World Wide Web, as we know it, was brand new. OK, this is when and people had Hotmail uh, email. Address. I didn't even have I, we didn't even have that back then in 2001. I maybe maybe I had a Hotmail. I, I definitely had my Hotmail address in 2001. People okay. were on dial up. It was when you got the CD Total dial up. And yes. like you had to have like an extra phone line in your house. Uh-huh. Or you have to tell people don't disconnect, or, don't pick up the phone. I'm on the internet. Oh, so yeah. what is internet marketing even? What concept? What does that mean? Is that in 2001? Let me tell you something about me. It didn't matter what it meant. Okay, I was like, I can do it. Yeah, like show me the job description. I read the job description. It was, you know, it was super vague. Like we need someone to, you know, market the bank on the internet to the target audience was college students. Mm. So you got to figure out how to create webmercials and come up with a website, you know, like every company now has a career section, right? There, this stuff was new back then. Like we didn't have stuff like this. And somehow they put 24, 25 year old me in charge of uh, eventually what was a multi-million dollar marketing campaign but for campus recruitment. Mm. And so I kind of had the best of both worlds. I'm like, oh, I'm doing marketing. I'm in HR with these super cool HR people. And I had to, at that time, and I'm, I'm a very sort of introspective human being. I'm like, all right, what am I doing how am I going to do it? What goals do I have for myself? I, I like a roadmap. Uh, and it was very clear to me that I was sort of sitting at a at a crossroad. And I was going to have to choose corporate marketing route or human resources. And simple mathematics, Delisha, I was like, uh, there's probably more job opportunities in human resources than in the small marketing department at the time. Mm-hmm. So, and I was set, like I told you, uh, amongst really sophisticated, smart um, HR people. So I chose the HR route and I started taking on more traditional um, human resources jobs like HR generalist or doing organizational development. I actually did a diversity gig 
way back in the day before diversity was even, quote, a thing. Um, and I probably stayed at the bank uh, for the first eight years um, of my career. And uh, I will call the name of this next organization because it no longer exists. Uh, I was sort of riding high, already operating at the VP level. I wasn't even 30 years old. Mm. Um, so I was, I was, I thought at that time, you know, like climbing this corporate ladder, like nobody's business. I was really proud of myself, but one of the uh, sort of catalysts for change uh, or changing companies was my company had merged probably for the third time mm. in my tenure. And that last merger, ooh, that last merger almost did me in. And I could tell that there was an underappreciation for the human resources function under the new leadership. And so I figured, you know, I've had a good run. Like maybe right. my time is up. Let me go find something else to do. And I found Lehman Brothers. Now, anybody who's listening and watching knows that Lehman Brothers does not exist anymore. It doesn't. Uh, and yes, I was there uh, for the collapse of that organization. Yes, I'm doing the, the math. So you had uh, yeah. the first job eight years. Eight so years. that's 2006. You got yes. Right? So you're yes. 2006. We know the, the Great Recession hit. When did, I'm trying to remember exactly when Lehman collapsed. You'd only had been there. At that point, probably, yeah, two years, right? Uh-huh. So I was there for two and a half years through the collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. for 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 somebody like you who has had great foresight, great ability to jump on uh, the right opportunity and really move in lockstep in that upwardly mobile trajectory professionally, mm-hmm. you're now at Lehman, right? And this is we all remember 2006 leading up to it. You knew something was going on, but but none of us really thought. Okay, it's the whole, they're going to let the bottom fall out, right? But you working at this organization, now I've watched the specials on Lehman. I know people who were at Lehman, but you being on the inside, what was that like for you? Like, did you see the writing on the wall at any point or were you completely blindsided? No, we did. I mean, I worked in, in a human resources, although it was it wasn't, the job wasn't set in HR. It was still mm-hmm. an HR role. I was running campus recruiting and, and program management for the largest division at the time, which was IT. I uh, had a wonderful woman CIO who mm. uh, I worked very closely with, loved her. Uh, I was actually watching sort of the the economic crises literally right before my eyes and and certainly having that business foundation at that point i was already pursuing or goodness i might have been finishing up my mba i did it part time go rutgers uh rutgers university i did it uh at night and on the weekends um and so i was pretty astute around the business dynamic around me um and then certainly operating in a bit of a quasi HR role, you know, you have more insights than perhaps a person that's not sitting inside of that space. But what was really fascinating at the time of the collapse is I was actually on maternity leave with my first daughter. Oh my gosh. So I was expected to be out for six months, um, which was a deal that I made. And and it it sort of was a signal to how um, valuable and important I felt and and must have been for them to, you know, approve such a thing. I'm only three months 
into that mat leave when literally the phone is, you know, blowing up. Girl, you need to log into your work account and make sure you print your paychecks because you need to be able to prove who you are, (laughs) who you are, your title, how much money you make, you know, how you're situated in in the world uh, because the, the company is literally going under. And, you know, it was one of those really um, pivotal moments where I had to decide, okay, do I cut my mat leave short and go back into the environment, a very tumultuous environment and navigate my way through? Do I trust that it'll all work itself out, but sort of performing that navigation on the outside of the organization um, and and pretty much relying on the network uh, that I had established internally or adjacent to, uh, to, to, to ensure I had a role on the other end of it. Um, and so long story short, um, I decided to finish out my mat leave. Uh, so I stayed home with my baby for six months. Uh, I made some connections internally, again, just based on who I knew and what calls I was able to make to ensure that uh, I had a job. My husband was a school teacher at the time. So um, I'm skipped right through that. So I've been married for 18 years um, and with my husband for 21 years. Uh, And so he was with me. We were together through this very crazy, um, crazy time and as new parents. um, And so I I needed to make sure I had a a job and not Mm -hmm. like a regular old job, like a really well-paying job, because that's what I was I was used to. And so what happened next, Alicia, is probably one of the most important things uh, professionally in my professional life. Um, I went into the Barclays environment, um, which bought Lehman Brothers in bankruptcy uh, in a role that was much junior uh, to the role that I had left and working for a woman who was junior to me. Mm. That was tough. Uh, And while I have nothing but respect and admiration for the woman uh, today, and and even back then, you know, she she was a good egg, but I just couldn't work out in my mind how I ended up here. I literally thought my career was over. I'm like, this is it. This upward trajectory that I was on, it just like literally collapsed before my eyes. I'm like, I'm never going to recover from this. This is a setback that's going to, I don't know what it's going to take to get out of this, right? 10 count, 10 count, my friend. I was like, all right, I I can do this. Like, and and the thing about me, um, and I try and advise people who are in similar situations, like when you make a decision to do something, you decided that. So do it. Right. If I decided to take this role because it was more important for me to be able to support my family and this new baby and, and you know, and continue to be the, the breadwinner, quite frankly, um, I made a choice. Um, and so I went in there. The very first thing I did with my new boss, I told you who she was, um, was, look, I'm here to operate in support of you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we when you look good, we all look good. I know this is awkward. 
because she knew it was awkward as much as I did. Um, I'm like, I'm not worried about that. Like I'm coming here to add value to this team. And for however long I choose to be here, I'm going to give you 100% because that's what I always do. Um, And it was that sort of attitude that even though it was tough to come into that environment and not be in the level role that I was accustomed to, um, it it humbled me. It humbled Mm -hmm. me in a way that I don't think any other professional experience has. Um, And it only took about three three good months uh, for me to find a more appropriate role, but I went hard in the paint in those three months and I did what I committed to do until another door opened. And when that door opened, I ran through it. So did the door open within the organization you were, you're already in, right? Because when I think back to that time, it reverberated, right? It it wasn't just the banking industry that was, people couldn't get jobs and I was coming out of you know law school at the time. Right. So people's law law firm, major law firm offers getting yanked yes. because it all it was just a domino effect that happened. Mm-hmm. So you so were you actively looking both outward or inward with the organization to try to find the next thing, despite Absolutely. like, you know, opportunities being pretty limited at that point? Yeah, it was it was pretty sparse uh externally, although I, I was sort of keeping my eyes open and ears uh, open, but but I I knew that it would probably be difficult for me to find a role externally given the the business environment. So I just started networking with people internally, and you know I I think I have a pretty good personality, and I'm also a, a glass half full kind of person. I don't I don't do woe is me. So I approached it with like. Here's the, here's the skill and competence I can bring to whatever the role is, you know, give me a shot. I know I'm coming from this other environment and where, where many people were showing up, woe is me. And I'm like, listen, I'm, I'm one foot forward. I'm already, you know, two steps ahead, uh, in terms of where I think I can be, uh, and what I think I can do. And it worked, it worked. So I enjoyed my time uh, at Barclays. I stayed there for about five years, actually. So you you talk about your 30s being the miracle years, right? So if we're thinking about age, this is all in the 30s, right? That this is happening. So why do you describe your 30s in that manner? So between 30 and 40 was just tough. I wish I had another like SAT word to use, but it it was, those were some really tough years. I I would, I'd say it was probably the steepest um, corporate climb. I didn't really know it was the steepest until now I'm well past 40. And I'm like, yeah, like you, I was, you know, I was in global roles. I'm traveling the world. I'm you know, just running, running uh, teams and functions that I just wouldn't have imagined doing uh, mm-hmm. prior to that. So it was, it was a crazy corporate climb during that 10 year period. I had two children. <laughs> um, I lost some pretty uh, dear people to me, um, both family members, but also dear friends mm-hmm. um, professionally 
and it's funny, you don't, you don't always consider your professional friends, dear friends. Uh, but to this day, um, I carry around in my wallet, um, something that this person who's, who's passed on wrote to me in, in the corporate setting. Uh, his name is David and David was just a special human being that I had worked with in Lehman Brothers and then also in, in the Barclays environment. And um, for whatever reason, we had this special connection with one another. Uh, he died very suddenly. Um, he couldn't have been more than 44 years old. Mm. Uh, and it it shook me. Like, I, I, I don't even know why it shook me in this way, but there was something about his passing that was like a mirror for me. It was you are grinding so hard. You are making so many sacrifices, again, with two small children uh, and traveling like a crazy person and, you know, working in the city, being there at 7 a.m. and not coming home until, you know, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock midnight, you know, during certain cyclical periods uh, when the job dictated it. It was just really tough. Like it, it everything was happening all at once and I was managing it mm -hmm. um, and, and feeling good about being able to do so, but, but not really realizing that it was impacting my spirit. My mm -hmm. spirit was messing. It was, 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 it just wasn't good. And when David passed, I was like, I could die at 44. Like mm -hmm. I'm not, I wasn't, I, you know, I was somewhere in between. I was probably late 30s at that point, maybe mid, mid 30s, mid to late 30s. I'm like, is this my fate? Like, am I, is this grind going to kill me? Because that's not what I want. You know, I want to be here for my children. I want to be here for my husband. We have these plans. You know, I'm supposed to be retiring at 55 you know, <laughs> and living that dream, right? All the wonderful things that we plan for ourselves. And it was a wallop, like, girl, you, you better wake up and know that you are allowing your boundaries to be crossed. Mm. Um, and I didn't really realize it. Um, and I, and I, I always, I share this story because I think it, it will tell you everything about my decision to leave financial services and go into a different sector. So I remember getting um, on a call very early and I had teams uh, of people that I was responsible for in multiple countries, um, Singapore, the UK, the US and, uh, and India. And so it was one of those like 6 a.m. kind of mornings. And I already have, this is before fancy AirPods, darling, but I, mm -hmm. I already had, you know, the earphones in my, in my ears and had already launched the call. I'll go to wake up my baby, who's now 13 years old, my, my little, my big daughter, because she was little at the time. And before she opened her eyes, I had all, already the call connected. When she opens, I look at her and I'm like, mm. and that baby stayed quiet. She knew exactly what that meant. And I don't know what it was about that particular time, because that wasn't the first time that that mm -hmm. had happened. I literally got off the call. I go into the bathroom and I am bawling. I am crying my eyes out. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, 
Do you know what message you just sent your little baby daughter? That that call was more important than her. Mm. And I've told that story a bunch of times, Delisha. This is probably the first time that I am not tearing up telling it because it messed with me. Mm-hmm. It messed with me for months until I realized, you know what? None of this is worth it. This mm-hmm. money is not worth it. This status. Oh, these first class flights to X, Y, and Z places. Doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter if your kid thinks that you think that something else is more important than her. And you know what's what I want to call out because we we talk about these full circle moments on this show and, and connecting dots. But I think w- when you grow up and you have womanhood models for you. So you mentioned your mom being in abusive situations, all of that, and and letting allowing boundaries to be crossed. When we see things like that, and we're like, that will never be me. That that will never be me. But we think about we think about it within the context of that specific experience, not realizing that we're still being socialized to allow our boundaries to be crossed. It just may manifest differently yes. in our lives because we're situated differently. Yes. Right. Yes. And so when you mentioned that, you know, not not having those boundaries in place, the first thing I thought about is, well, that's how you were socialized. That's growing right. up. It's just, That's it's just right. in a different, it's in a different outfit, but it's the same thing. You're absolutely right. Another thing, I, I feel like I need to come sit on your couch. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that never really occurred to me until you just said it. <laughs> Welcome to the December 26th podcast. This is what we do. You are a special human being. Okay. All right. All right. Well, anyway, I got myself right out of that. Uh, I decided that I had had enough I started looking for another job externally and I was I was very uh, clear that I needed to come out of New York City and find mm-hmm. myself a job in New Jersey where I lived. And I had had my run in financial services. So I um, I came upon this incredible opportunity to join an HR uh, technology company. And that's uh, what I did for the next seven years Mm -hmm. uh, until the role that I'm in today. And, you know, I I go back to my 24, 25 year old self and that sort of crossroad I was in uh, or at rather marketing route versus HR. And I remember very specifically setting a goal for myself, a big dream, a big goal um, to be, on the HR leadership team of a company, of a Fortune 500 company one day. It's funny now I look back and I'm like, why didn't I think I could be a CHRO, like a head of HR for a company or, uh, you know, in some other sort of executive role sitting around the CEO table versus uh, the HR table? It just didn't occur to me. I I don't Mm. know if it's just that we didn't have too many examples of such um, or that I perceived you know, that goal to be such a stretch goal and something that I knew I could strive and, and aspire to. Um, and what what happened next after uh, joining this fabulous company that I was with for seven years, uh, around the, maybe 40, 41 years old. So now we're past the miracle years and I'm, you know, I, I got my stride. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling actually on top of the world. I got the promotion to 
the quote dream job. Mm. Uh, and I was sitting on the HR leadership team of this company in a big fancy title. I had a big fancy office, uh, you know, well, all the wells, right. Including well-respected, uh, mm -hmm. And when I, I, I think it must have been about two weeks into the job. It certainly couldn't have been more than a month into the role. I'm sitting at my desk in my big fancy office and I'm crying again, Delisha. I'm a crier. I'm an easy crier. But this was like a big, ugly, like, <laughs> you're like one of those. Yeah, that's like, not cry, yes. That's not cry. The Viola Davis cry. cry. Yes. And, I, and again, I'm like, what is wrong with me? I am on top. Like you just got the biggest promotion of your professional life. Why are you crying? Self <laughs> talking to myself. And you know what? I arrived at, I was sad because I had not dreamed big enough. Mm. I thought to myself, if I'm 41, 42, what in the world am I going to do next? I don't have a plan beyond this point. And it made me uncomfortable. It made me mm. sad. It made me scared. I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I, I'm still hell bent on retiring at 55 from corporate America. That's a lot of years yes. <laughs> not, to, not to have a plan. And it upset me. It upset me. And, you know, I had to another life lesson or a professional life lesson. You don't always have a roadmap and that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to get real comfortable with, look, you just got your butt into the seat, figure out how to do that well. Okay. Yes. Fo focus on that. <laughs> and it's okay not to have the roadmap 10 years out. Um, and it worked. It worked all the way up until an opportunity internally knocked uh, for me to become the chief diversity officer of the company. Uh, not something that I had written into my plan because I didn't have a plan beyond the seat that I was sitting in, but I certainly didn't expect to be doing uh, DEI work. It just, it was always part of HR strategy for me uh, as an HR leader uh, and in and, and the various HR executive roles I had held, but I, I didn't think I wanted to be responsible for it, you know, for the subject matter uh, for a company. Uh, but something funny happens when you tell the Lord, no, the Lord is like, really? Really? Like, that's cute. <laughs> right. Like, I have the plan, not you. And it was, it was the, this is my plan for you, for sure. Uh, it, has absolutely opened the door, or it did rather open the door for me to do exactly what I do today, uh, which I never would have imagined. I couldn't have dreamed this up. Uh, I did not envision sitting around uh, the table with, you know, CEOs and CFOs and, and carrying a chief title myself. I just... Uh, yeah, I, I didn't know it was possible. I'm here to tell you that it is. Uh, I am the first chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer that my company has ever had. I am also the first Black person sitting around that CEO table. So I am very, very proud uh, of the journey to get to this new seat. Uh, I am in a completely different industry uh, than I've ever operated in. I only know this industry that I'm in as a consumer, 
certainly not as someone who has led in this type of business, uh, but media and entertainment is kind of fun. So mm-hmm. I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> it, it, it it comes with a lot. But I always tell people when they, they ask about my time in it, I'm like, you invite to the best parties. <laughs> there, there, there are many doors that open just because you work in the space. It's hard. Yeah. Like, don't get it twisted. It's not all fun and games, but it, it does come with some perks. Yes. Yes, so it does. When I think about diversity and inclusion, like when I think back to the start of my internships yeah. and early careers, I'm like what that meant, right? Back then, there was always like an alliance. And there was always a recruitment pipeline specifically for diverse candidates. They would work with inroads and this and that organization um, to kind of bring in uh, minority candidates. And that was kind of it, right? Like you you had your black affinity group, your Hispanic affinity group, you had your recruiting plan. um, And that was, that was all that was happening. When we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in 2021, Nobody's playing games with these companies anymore. Like, let's just say that, right? You you can't get away with the bare minimum and like, well, we have this recruitment pipeline and you know, there are whole spreadsheets out there that that are public that show people's numbers. Like it's, mm-hmm. th- this is the, the beauty of the internet, right? And black Twitter and all these things, right? You will get dragged. And so when we think about just the last 18 months and the civil unrest that happened really early in the pandemic in light of George Floyd's murder and all those things. And companies are making statements and writing checks. It, it became, it created a larger dialogue around what is the long-term strategy for companies to really demonstrate sustainable commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what are they doing to diversify at a more senior level, right? Because it's one thing to say we're diverse and all those candidates are entry level and they're not getting past middle management. It's another thing to say we're committed to DEI and there's someone at the seat of the table and they're doing what it takes to really diversify at C-suite and just below C-suite. So I said all of that to say, you've got this big job, but there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. And that pressure is different than what it was even a decade ago. Yes. Right. Yeah. So when you when you come into this kind of opportunity and you've had the career that you had, did you say I've arrived and I'm ready mm-hmm. or was there a bit of trepidation? There was definitely trepidation. I mean, I, I switched companies in the middle of a pandemic, uh, which I'm sure lots of people thought was crazy. Uh, it was a little crazy. Um, it was definitely a faith walk. Um, but it was also at a time where we were coming off of that catalytic summer uh, that we now sort of call, you know, and I, I hate calling it uh, post-George Floyd because it just, it minimizes it. Right. Um, but since the world is referring to it, you know, I'll, I'll fall in line with that. It's burdensome work. Today, uh, not that it wasn't burdensome before, but there is a different, heavier burden uh, that I personally experienced being a Black woman in this role after a catalytic summer uh, yes. that we've had. And so it was really important for me to join an organization that wasn't just about the statements and the checks, um, to join an organization that wasn't part of you know, some sort of cancellation, you know, had done something wrong, if you will. Um, and, and you know, I'm a, I'm a big, I think I said this before, uh, I hold the mirror up to mm-hmm. myself 
all the time. I figure if you can't like fairly assess yourself, you can't assess anything. Um, And so I perceived the organization that I joined as one that literally just held the mirror up to itself and said, we're not doing what we should be doing. Um, And for me, that recognition uh, and some of the actions that were taken uh, in support of that recognition was enough for me to kind of leap, you know, step out uh, on faith and and leap into a new space. But it's hard. Uh, Mm -hmm. Many days, although they are fun because it's media and entertainment, uh, many days are hard because I'm not just trying to account for what's happening on the inside of our four walls. I'm also um, putting strategy and plans in place for what's happening with our content as well. Yes. And when you take the internal and the consumer facing approach to the work, I think that's the only way to ensure sustainability. We're, you know, we're accounting for our consumers. We're accounting for the product that is meant to meet that consumer where they are. But we can't do that effectively if the inside of our house is not as diverse as the rich fabric of our society. And so that's what makes on a day to day basis uh, my role very meaningful. Um, It also makes it a heavy load, but, you know, our our ancestors would would tell us, and I I try and listen for, you know, what the ancestors are telling me. They're like, if not you, then who? Mm -hmm. So carry the load. And, you know, it's okay to carry it for as long as you can. And when you can't carry the load anymore, and this is a life principle for me, but certainly I've experienced it in the context of this work. When you can't carry the load anymore, then it's your responsibility to ensure that there is someone for you to pass to. And that's what I do every day. That's good. That's good. You know, I, when I think back, and I'm glad you brought this up, this concept of post-George Floyd, because one of the conversations I had internally at my company and with even friends and colleagues who don't look like me who kept saying, how can we get support? How can we support? One of the things that I tried to make clear was that this is a painful series. This is a painful season and a series of painful seasons, right? It it reached a fever pitch from a, from a place of like public protest um, and really being a catalyst for change. But we had been witnessing these events uh, for for years before that, and and it was a it was a constant on the news cycle, right? Or just on the grapevine, you would talk to your black colleagues and friends about it. But that had had risen to the point of like it was mainstream news, and then they started highlighting stories of others as well. And then also, when you add on top of that, the microaggressions, the things that we experience, the challenges as black people in professional spaces every day. It, it, it really had metastasized to a point where it was a lot to manage. So I want to tie that to a blog post you wrote about women, you know, putting on the cape and always saying I'm fine. And when that's not really, that's not true for a lot of us, but we've learned how to, I'm just going to put it out there. I don't know how to say that eloquently. It's a lot, right? I, I know many people who say I've said it. I'm circling the drain. I'm like, I'm good. 
mismanaging, right? Mm. But when you think about where you sit professionally, mm. right? That's true for all women who are trying to manage family and life and thrive and perform at a really high level professionally. When you think about where you sit in the corporate landscape and trying to hold that close of, I don't have to say that I'm fine when I'm not. I can check in with myself and, and provide myself with space to heal, rest, and recover. But the very issue that you're addressing at work not only impacts you as a Black woman, but you're also tasked with helping to solve it. So thinking about keeping your own humanity intact, are you able to do that at the table as you're working to solve really difficult problems that also are probably affecting you mentally and emotionally as well? Yeah, it... You basically wrapped it up in a in a pretty little uh, bow with some really nice wrapping paper. Um, it's um, it's complicated. I think how I'm able to do it is being able to quickly identify one or two people because sometimes that's all you get in these spaces. But one or two people that you can trust, and it's not always people who look like me, because there are very many of us, you know, Mm -hmm. that are, that are operating, um, in these places and spaces. Right. And I'm very fortunate in my current environment to have, uh, a couple of women who, um, have similar profiles professionally. Uh, they're, they're not black women, uh, but they happen to be women that share, you know, similar, beliefs about themselves and, and, um, employ what I call strategies, right. To deal with what these environments give us. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really the only way that I'm able to press through internally. I mean, I certainly still have that crew, (laughs) that core that's around me outside of my organization that, you know, they're just a text or a phone call um, or a quick car ride uh, away. I I don't know another way like that. Tapping into those women and and actually I got a couple of really solid uh, men as as allies as well and white men to Mm -hmm. be fair. Uh, that I've developed really um, deep or deeper relationships with. I think that's also the key too, because I think we're conditioned, especially in the Black community, to um, distrust uh, to an extent um, with people who are not like us. And we're also, you know, conditioned to um, leave ourselves at the door Yes. Uh, in the, in the corporate space. And I don't, I don't subscribe to that by the way. I mean, there, there certainly were times in my professional upbringing where I would never wear this crazy hair out, you know, it would, it would be back and in a nice little neat bun. Um, but you, at some point in your career, you arrive at a place where, you know what, I can show up and, and, and be myself. Um, and in that sort of being myself, identifying people, who I could develop a deeper relationship with. Um, And a lot of times, especially these days, uh, those people don't look like me. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple do, but for the the most part, uh, these deep relationships are with people who are different. 
um, that have a that have had a different profile, a different upbringing. You know, they they've not experienced an Aisha uh, in their life, and I don't perceive that as a bad thing. I think mm-hmm. it's it's fabulous. You know that you get to to know an Aisha, and I'm sort of talking about myself outside of myself, but that's a difference maker in the corporate space. Um, when you get, when you get to develop and foster and nurture these relationships that will, I think, change how we perceive each other, you Mm -hmm. know, not just us to them, whoever them is, but them to us. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, what's worked for me. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that I've tried to speak about, I've spoken about it on the show and, and in conversations, particularly talking with folks coming out of university or really earlier in their career, that is, it is possible to have allies who don't look like you, Absolutely. right? And, and every major leap in my career has been from an ally. And I, I have, right, I have the support system, like you said, that I can call and I don't have to explain why something offended me or I'm why I'm upset about something because they know because they're similarly situated and they look like me. But there are others who have played a pivotal role in my professional development and my professional growth and advancement who are white men. Right. And one of the 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 conversations I had just yesterday, um, we're very open about therapy on this show or huge proponents, but I was Mm -hmm. talking to my therapist and one thing that she said that really resonated and is relevant to this conversation is just because someone is not culturally connected to you does not mean they don't have the ability to be culturally aware. That's right. And that is, I think, what we're talking about here, right? Yes. And this, it, they may not even come in fully knowledgeable, but if they have the ownership of their own naivete and a, and a willingness to learn and open yes. openness to learn and, and also an ability to offer skills that are transferable and coping mechanism and, yes. and all those things, those relationships are valuable as well. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And I've experienced uh, the same thing. Parallel lives, you and I. (laughs) Parallel. Yeah. Absolutely. So shifting gears a bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Ooh. Okay. Give me a second. Of course. You've stumped me. We've been talking for a long time. Now we now, now I'm like, wait, what what else can we talk about? Hold this on. This is I told you this is what happens. This is why I tell oh. people to just take their time, think about mm. it. Cause you've you've told the whole extraordinary and ordinary ordinary day's story, right? Yeah. Um, so then by the time you get here, you're like, hmm, what can I call out specifically? Yeah, my goodness. You know, <laughs> This is soup. It, it's it's small, but it's big for me. Um, by most people's account, I've won. Mm-hmm. I've won the game. Like anybody who like they're like, she got it. Like you know, everything has turned out uh, wonderfully, <laughs> uh, and I'm and I'm happy, and I'm blessed, and I wear a bracelet. You can't see it. It says grateful. I am just so I'm uh, deeply grateful for all of the blessings. Uh, that have that have come my way, um, but most of the time when I encounter people who think I've won, <laughs> uh, air quotes won, um, I meet them with, yeah, but you know, in sports, 
you're only as good as your last championship, right? <laughs> your last win. It, it, once it's over, it's over, right? Uh, and I won't call the names of any teams that aren't doing particularly well right now that we're champions, but you get the point. Um, so I meet those conversations with, you know, you're you're partially right. Um, but from where I sit, I don't get to keep winning unless I'm winning through others, mm. through through Delisha's win, right? Maybe I'm here for, you know, your your podcast, you know, the folks who are tuning in. I could be here for you. You mm. know, I could so I try to walk in the world and and pay attention to those opportunities to contribute to somebody else's win. And I had this situation um two weeks ago. I think it was two weeks ago. I was at a work event uh, and uh, a senior executive inside of my company, Black woman, was being honored, which I was just so delighted to say a few words about her uh, in advance of her getting her recognition. And after the event was over, you know, people were mixing and mingling. And it was a woman's uh, a woman's event uh, centered on women leaders, women executives. Uh, and so one of the organizers brings me a woman, right? Mm -hmm. And this happens all the time. Oh, you know, meet such and such. Oh, I really wanted this person to meet you. Um, so it was, it was definitely one of those situations. Uh, and the woman happened to be a young black woman. Uh, and by the way, women are placed in my path all the time. This Mm -hmm. happens to me all the time. And this is, this is how I get to keep winning for sure. So I, you know, pleasure to meet you, you know, what you do, where you work, you know, the niceties and whatever, whatever she said prompted me to pause. And now we're sort of private. We're having sort of a sidebar private conversation. I looked at her, I looked her in her eye and I said, you know, I was supposed to meet you today. Mm -hmm. What's, what's going on? I heard you say you just moved to, I think she just moved to Chicago and doing this DEI work. And she looks at me and she says, Aisha, it's lonely. Mm. It's lonely up here. And I pulled out my phone and I said, give me your email right now. I'm going to email you because we, there's something else we're supposed to talk about. This is nice. (laughs) This this is cute. This is cute for us. But I believe that perhaps the reason why I'm here is to meet you. Mm. So let's get together. And she was pretty floored, actually. I, I think because she knew she needed something. I don't know if she even knows what she needs right now. But the simple sort of art of paying attention to someone looking someone in their eye, asking the right question, probing when necessary, all in support of contributing to their win. Mm. That's how I try to show up extraordinary on a regular day. I was there to give remarks in honor of one of the senior executive women that I love and respect and admire. But really, I might have been there for that woman. Mm. So we're meeting tomorrow. <laughs> she and I. Listen, I love it. Cause you know, you have those experiences and we're all super busy and you're juggling and 
we're going to get a date on the calendar. So when people actually follow through and forge that relationship, it's, it's such a big deal. I'm so happy to hear that. And I don't think it's intentional when it doesn't happen, but I've had so many of those encounters where it's like, this is somebody I'm supposed to know. They know it. I know it. But then we don't we don't build on that for for one reason or another. Life gets in the way. Too many meetings. And and let's be clear, like it's it takes intention. It takes intention to build those relationships and create yes. space for them. But they're so necessary. And and I think I was having this conversation with a good friend who's also a former colleague. And um, you know, since the pandemic, a couple of us have started new journeys professionally. And one of the things that we said over text was we had. And the, the the new journeys are amazing, right? I was celebrated when I took the next yeah. big job, right? But I I underestimated the value of just meeting somebody I'm really connected to in the pantry at the same time at the coffee machine or having a quick laugh in the, the hallway or sending that I am saying, what are you doing after this? Because I needed a drink, right? Like, let's go straight exactly to happy hour right, right now. now. Yes. And so- Working so hard to get to this point in your career where you're like, yes, this is the next level. And it's it's with every level, it feels a bit more alone. Yeah. I did not, I was not sensitive to that. I did not have an appreciation for how that would have affected me until I was in it. Yeah. yeah. So when you when you meet somebody and you take the opportunity to say, no, no, this this is a divine connection we need to build on this, mm-hmm. that 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 means a lot for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned. Wanting to retire at 55, which I fully support, even if you can back it up to 50 at this point, I'm like, man, I know, I know, I know, 50. But what does life look like for you uh, right now in terms of uh, after retirement in a perfect world? What would you be doing? Yeah, in a perfect world uh, at 55. Well, first, I... I'm really curious what my children are going to do. Mm. Um, and my husband and I are like, what if they end up, you know, God knows where, and then we want to be close to them and we got to move and do all this. So everything is sort of open, but uh, my my dream for myself uh, when I, when I stop walking through, you know, the, the sky rise buildings <laughs> in New York city uh, is probably to, consult um, and advise, perhaps in the people space, I could totally see myself doing, you know, executive coaching and, you know, maybe a little life coaching. Uh, But I'm also very much, my husband and I both very much into real estate. So we've been accumulating properties uh, over the past couple of years. So I imagine that we'll spend some time managing those because we won't have to manage full-time jobs. But I, I, I also just really want to travel like extensive travel. I love, love, love traveling. And if I could figure out how to consult and travel, you know, mm-hmm. sort of at the same time, uh, that would be fun. Um, and, and I just, at the end of the day, I've got to figure out a way to continue to inspire people, motivate people to be their best self. Um, I really just want to be in service to, to, to people and let my life, my life's work, my life's journey, um, help change somebody. Mm. Um, I know that I did not get here by accident. Uh, I know that I did not get here by myself. Um, I know that there are elements of my story that 
are just unheard of for people like you did what um and and I want that to be a seed for someone. Um, I want to seed somebody's greatness. I want to help contribute to the next woman's win. Um, and so whatever I do, it will absolutely be centered on that. Ooh, that's good. And I have to say this, this was nowhere in my notes, but I think it's important to, to highlight. Shout out to a long lasting marriage as well. Because I, I think there's this narrative um, that's placed upon Black women that you can really shoot for the goalpost and climb the ladder, but ain't no man going to be okay with that, right? Like, I've heard that so many times as a still single, uh, <laughs> about to be 48 in a couple of months. Like, you know, so I, I think it's important to applaud that when yes. when a, a couple has figured out how to make it work for them yes. and they have a healthy marriage and they're raising wonderful children yes. and they're planning for a great life together. That's important. So kudos oh, to you and your husband. Shout out. Thank you. Thank you. He is so wonderful. I, I can't, we could do a whole nother show on that man. He, these children, Nola and Zia that we have created or God allowed us to create. Um, but even aside from being parents, like we, we just ride for each other. Like he is my he is my ace. Um, and people are like, oh, is he your best friend? No, he's not my best friend. I already told you I got three best friends. Okay. I can name them. <laughs> he is not my best friend. He is just my everything else. <laughs> so it's a good dude. I love that. And there's so much we can talk about there with it's okay that he's not your best friend, but that's like a, that could be another conversation. Oh my goodness. Now you need another podcast for that. <laughs> yes. A whole other thing around that. But before we let you get out of here, where can people find you online? Oh my goodness. Uh, you can, you, what do my kids say? You can just use the Google. Okay. <laughs> the Google will tell you everything you want to know about me. Uh, but I am obviously on LinkedIn, Aisha Thomas Petit. I'm also, uh, on IG, uh, at the real ATP. Um, and then you've referenced a couple times, some blogs and some things that you, that you uncovered, uh, all of that is a little dormant right now. I'm still sort of just working through this new role that I have. Uh, so I haven't given it much time and attention, but everything you ever want to know about me is uh, on a website called 52weekhigh.com. 50 as in the number two, 52-week high. Uh, when I am past that 55 uh, mark, it will probably be more of a thing than it is today. Um, but you'll, you'll, you'll experience who I am through the words on the page. So Here's what I have that. learned. It yes. doesn't matter how old it is. Once people go down a rabbit hole, they decide they want to find out everything about you. They will. They, they're going to read. Trust me. <laughs> I've learned this. Doesn't matter. You haven't posted it a year. It doesn't. They're going to digest <laughs> whatever is there. Awesome. Well, I knew I would thoroughly enjoy this conversation. I absolutely did. We've we've been on a we've been on a bit of a tear here, and people. It's interesting because Demarcus and I have been talking about, you know, some kind of series or some kind of themed thing with Black women who've reached a certain level of their career professionally, but are at a point where they're really resting in their humanity and are okay with putting that on display. Um, and you know, I don't I don't believe that anything is by coincidence, as we've talked about. So this is another sign for me. 
that like we've got to move in that direction. So yes. thank you so much for for giving me the time uh, today and, and just coming in so open and honest about your journey. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And I can't wait to break bread with you. We getting together. Yes. And we both Jersey girls. So that's yes, we sure. are getting together. Yes. <laughs> so to our listeners, you know how I wrap it up every week. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, comment, tell two, three, four, five, six of your girlfriends about it. And I know we have a lot of male listeners who love these episodes as well. So we thank you for your support. Um, now Aisha has already put it out there. Listen, she's a mentor. She's planting seeds. You know, we are about building community, about building a network. If she is someone that you want to talk to, reach out to her, send a note, do it the right way though. Y'all know what to do. And as always remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.